Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. Our co-host Damien Garday is on vacation. It's Thursday, April 7th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The FDA on Wednesday convened another meeting of outside vaccine experts to consider questions about COVID-19 boosters and the potential for updated vaccines that better match the circulating strains of SARS-CoV-2. Stat reporter Drew Joseph spent all day watching the FDA proceedings, and he's going to join us to discuss. Then we'll take a look at Vertex Pharmaceuticals and its recent string of R&D successes, including what might be a groundbreaking therapy for type 1 diabetes. And as we often do, we'll kick off the podcast with a chatty Cathy round of hot takes on this week's news. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT. On the heels of the 2022 American Academy of Neurology Annual Meeting, or AAN, I'm here with Gregory Rippon, Vice President and Chief Medical Partner at Genentech. Greg, why does neuroscience research require an incredible amount of persistence? Thanks, Angus. Conditions of the nervous system are historically some of the most complex and difficult to understand and treat. We've made great strides over the past few decades, but it's been a challenging journey. We've gained scientific insights around biomarkers, dosing approaches, and clinical trial design that are helping us understand how to potentially effectively treat neurological conditions. We continue to learn more about when, in whom, and for how long to intervene, and how to measure therapeutic effects on cognition, function, and biomarkers at various points in the disease continuum. Importantly, we have doubled down, building on our experience across neurologic disorders to inform what's next. To learn more about our research efforts, visit gene.com forward slash neuroscience. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash neuroscience. So we were off last week and we didn't get to talk about the big FDA panel for Amelix, the um, ALS drug that we had talked a lot about leading up to the panel. Um, Ultimately, the panel ended up voting against the drug, but Adam, it was a lot closer than I think a lot of folks expected. What did you make of the results? Yeah, the vote was six to four. uh, And basically, that was kind of a, you know, a recommendation against approval, at least right now. I think the, you know, the FDA certainly wants to see more data from an ongoing phase three study. And it seemed like the panel members agreed the consensus, although, again, uh, four votes kind of in favor of the drug, I think, was maybe closer than what the FDA had thought that they were going to hear. And and so that kind of leaves the ultimate approval decision, which is going to be coming, uh, you know, later this summer, that, that kind of leaves it open. You know, the my, my biggest takeaway was, uh, well, two things. First, first of all, there were 90 minutes uh, of an open public hearing where uh, ALS patients and their caregivers, family members spoke very eloquently and in, in heartbreaking detail about what it was like to um, to be diagnosed with ALS and to to, to live with this disease. Um, you know, it's it really kind of brings home, I think, the human side of a lot of the stuff that we talk about. And I think everyone who listened to it, I think you could not be affected by by what you heard uh, during during the panel. My other takeaway is um, that a lot of people kind of looked at the panel, the way the FDA was kind of very critical, you know, the neurology division within the FDA, very critical of the data, pointing out inconsistencies and issues and shortcomings, um, and and saw it as kind of like a return to normalcy 
for that division in the FDA. And and it also just sort of struck me as it, it, getting back to our favorite topic, Biogen, is, you know, how lenient the FDA was with Biogen and its Alzheimer's drug and how kind of that just sort of, now it makes it even stand out even more. And I think it just raises even more questions about how the FDA handled the Biogen Adjuhelm review because, you know, it was just sort of so out of the norm for for this group within the FDA, this neurology group, which is usually so conservative. Can I ask you to make a prediction about what the FDA is going to do by the PDUFA date in June? I would, I mean, look, I would have to say that the consensus is that, you know, they are going to, you know, ask the company to complete this phase three study that they have ongoing. Uh, and, and if that study is positive, then, you know, they could resubmit for approval. It, I think that it's an uphill battle to see the company get approval sooner than that. So it's the beginning of the second quarter, and, and Meg, as you know, I put together this scorecard for kind of big events in Q2, and uh, one of them is uh, Roche has got this really big study for an immunotherapy drug that targets a protein called Tigit uh, in non-small cell lung cancer. I think it's something that everyone is uh, waiting for the results. You spoke to the Roche CEO recently about that. Yeah, and it was a really interesting time to talk with him because Roche is expecting these uh, next set of results, but they just had a disappointing study, sort of their first look. Uh, we asked Severin Schwan, the CEO of Roche, kind of how he looks at the probability of success for this target, which of course is one that a lot of drug makers are going after um, in the wake of that study. Here's what he said. Yeah, this uh, target we feel is a very important one and we have actually a range of trials for different cancer types. This first trial uh, was for a very uh, difficult uh, type of cancer, so we knew that the probability was low that this trial would succeed. But there's other trials upcoming and, uh, uh, you know, uh, let's keep fingers crossed. I think there's a good chance that other indications will work out fine. What I should so, Adam, thinking about the rest of the second quarter, any other one of your biotech scorecard events you want to highlight or just sort of what's the overall feeling among biotech folks right now after a pretty tough first quarter? Yeah, you know, I think my 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 biggest thought there, Meg, is that people just want good news, right? I think what we've seen is you know a tough first quarter, right? And with a lot of you know a lot of clinical data readouts that were just negative, you know, there's just been this preponderance of negative results, and so uh, I think people would like to see over the next three months, you know, clinical trial readouts in a much more positive direction. It's become a regular event in every pandemic reporter's life. Uh, Every few months, spend eight straight hours watching the FDA meet with its vaccine advisors over video. This week's meeting was more wide-ranging than usual. Instead of discussing a specific vaccine application, the group was trying to hash out how to figure out whether we need to update the COVID vaccines for the fall, when, and a number of other tricky questions. Stat reporter Drew Joseph covered the whole thing, and he's here now to discuss it. Drew, welcome back to the Read Out Loud. Yeah, thanks. It's nice to be here. So the meeting kind of kicked off with one of the trickiest questions of all. Dr. James Hildreth, a member of the advisory committee, almost immediately asked why the FDA didn't consult the group on a major decision about boosters just last week, which was, of course, making fourth shots available to everyone over age 50. How did the FDA respond to that? Yeah, so the timing of this was pretty funny. Like this this meeting had been announced last month at some point, and it was set up as this general discussion as you were talking about, Meg. But then last week, the FDA made that booster announcement without um, consulting its verb pack. And so 
Um, what Peter Marks, uh, who's a top vaccine regulator at FDA, said in response to Dr. Hilder's question was, let's see here, um, we consider that not as a major expansion or a major change, but something that we looked over the data and felt was reasonable to do at the time. So yeah, so Marks is basically saying this was like sort of, um, I don't know, just like a, a like a, a, a tweak almost or something where they didn't need to really convene the whole pack. But if I sort of can read between the lines a little bit, uh, Marx also later referred to this decision as a stopgap measure. I think there's just a little bit of anxiety about what's happening epidemiologically right now. Like maybe the U.S. is um, in the early stages of some size of spike, maybe not a huge one in cases. but And so there's just some anxiety, I think, about the levels of protection in older populations and for people with like um, with immunocompromising conditions, just because they're the people who are most vulnerable, even with shots. So I think that was maybe just a way for the FDA to help get people who are, you know, who want another shot, another shot, just to get them a little more protection quite quickly. The meeting really reflected how much uncertainty uh, there is right now, particularly around the future course of the pandemic as well as the best way to adjust the vaccines to address it, uh, there were some presentations from modelers trying to chart out the future. What did those reveal, Drew? Yeah, I mean, basically, like, um, they reflected the uncertainty, as you were saying, but like the two uh, seemingly definite things are the virus will keep evolving and that there will be future waves. But it's really hard to predict like how big those waves will be, when exactly they will be, and just how the virus will evolve. Like, you know... There's been a ton of evolution in the virus for like over the past two and a half years, um, like kind of way more than experts initially uh, anticipated. This thing is just changing really quickly. But then every once in a while, there's sort of like a freak thing like where Omicron happens, which is just like so wildly different from any other circulating strain. So that there's like all this unpredictability in terms of uh, figuring out how what the virus will look like even, you know, four months from now. Like it's basically like a moving target. Like if you want to design your vaccine to better reflect the circulating strain, like you just don't really know what it's going to look like. And so there's a concern basically if you update your vaccines to better reflect the circulating strain now, what happens if the virus changes, you know, the next week or something like that, and it kind of undercuts the power of your updated vaccine. So these are, they're really wrestling with some like really tough and like, by definition, unknowable questions. Yeah. And everything you were just saying, it sounds so much like what they do for the flu every year, where in February for the Northern Hemisphere, the decisions are made about which strains to put in the flu vaccine for the fall. Is that are we at a point now where the experts think we can think about COVID in the same way? I mean, we're already in April and we're talking about potentially getting ready for a wave in the winter this year, although it sounded like the experts were saying it's not even determined to be seasonal yet, even though we've seen winter waves before. So they want to prepare for that, but they don't know if we're going to have one. But can we think about this like a flu shot yet? I think people are making the flu comparison perhaps because that's like the best thing we have, the best framework we have if we're trying to build a new system, a new process for updating the um, COVID vaccines. But yeah, like they also talked about that there are some key differences and, and maybe we're just not quite there with with uh, SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus yet. But, you know, the, it does seem like there's a desire at least to have this be like a global decision, you know, something maybe the WHO coordinates and national regulators get involved with as well. So that's kind of like the flu. But there are there are other things like Meg, like you were saying, like their flu is pretty regularly like a seasonal virus, depending on where you are in the world, like the Northern Hemisphere versus Southern Hemisphere. SARS-2 has is like there are seasonal patterns to it, but it hasn't quite settled into such a uh, 
like a regular pattern, I guess. Um, and, you know, we've had like summertime surges in parts of the United States, which doesn't really happen with flu outside of, of sort of freak years. And, you know, there are different platforms like the COVID-19 shots have these are some of them are mRNA vaccines. Um, and so, yeah, there are some differences, I would say, um, with with flu. But again, like that's kind of the best model we have. And, you know, at the same time, like I think, you know, flu is a, a a pretty set system for how they do it, but it's also not a perfect system, which is why like, you know, they're still having to make guesses about which strains to put in the flu vaccine every year. And sometimes they're, you know, pretty spot on and sometimes they're way off and then your flu vaccine just isn't that great that year. So it's like, that's also an imperfect system, I would say. So Drew, you know, you mentioned the mRNA vaccines and I guess we think about these as kind of this amazing platform that can be tweaked, manufactured so much faster than the more traditional technologies like, you know, like like the current flu vaccines, which are grown in eggs. But some of the presentations reveal that we still need to make a lot of these decisions in advance of a potential winter surge, right? Yeah, so that was kind of a topic that kept coming up at the meeting. Basically like, okay, if if we're concerned about um, a fall winter surge, we might, we're thinking we might want to update the vaccines ahead of time. Like when do we need to make that call? Um, and some of the presenters like from different government agencies sort of talked around that. Like Meg, I know you were watching at some of this presentations, but basically the gist seems that like a decision might need to be made quite soon in a way, because like, you know, the regulators will want some trial data, like, you know, immunogenicity and safety data from some volunteers. Um, There's going to have to be a big shift in manufacturing, obviously. So basically the timetable that seemed to emerge was basically maybe in the, in the May, June range. And that's, you know, so you have all the time ready to, you know, kind of gear up for a fall uh, vaccine campaign. But at the same time, then they're in this sort of like catch 22, because, some of the models are suggesting, and I think the chair of the committee, Arnold Monto, is saying maybe in the best case scenario, we don't get this BA2 surge that they're worried about right now. And we head into this sort of quiescent summer. And so there's not a lot of virus circulating at the very time they have to decide what to do with the vaccines for the fall. And then there's this kind of existential question for the vaccines, which they grappled with, which is at what point do we decide they're not working well enough in their current form and we need to change them? So where did they kind of come down on that? Yeah, one thing that's been sort of heartening, I guess, thus far in the pandemic is that the current vaccines have held up really well, like um, overall, um, even in the face of a, a virus that's like changed a ton, which is like basically the Omicron example. And basically even a, a re- another, like a booster of the regular, you know, stand, original <laughs> recipe shot was able to withstand um, or sort of restore the levels of protection, even in the face of a virus that's changed a ton. And especially, you know, that kind of gets into the question of what do we want the vaccines to be able to do? Like, Sure, even with boosters, a lot of people still got breakthrough infections, but the vaccines were able to maintain their protection against severe disease, hospitalization, and deaths. And so some people are like, if that's what we really care about, and the vaccines have shown that they can sort of um, withstand a ton of viral evolution and still provide protection against severe disease, and changing the vaccine has like kind of, you know, some potential downside. It seems like it would be a huge headache. Like maybe we just stay with these current vaccines because they seem to be doing a pretty good job. But there were questions like Meg, you were asking about like, how do we know like when (laughs) there's a huge problem here? And part of that gets into the fact that like, they just don't really know what sort of lab data they should be looking for it at that point. Like they know levels of antibodies will fall when exposed to, or like when they're tested against a, a changed virus, but they don't really know what 
sort of threshold they should set for when antibodies drop below that level, they should update their vaccine. They're just still trying to figure a lot of this stuff out, whereas they have sort of that type of data for flu, for example. Andrew, who's coordinating all of that work? And when we think about you know the question of whether or not to update vaccines and 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 how to do it, what to do, like is there coordination amongst the companies and the government? Yeah, I mean that was one thing that the committee members were pretty clear about. They want the government, they want like the committee um, to be sort of calling the shots on this. And it did seem like there were some of the companies were the companies have been exploring you know variant specific. Um, shots. They've been exploring what are called bivalent um, shots where you basically put, you know, try to put two targets in one shot. But it sounded like some of that, the companies, like it makes sense the companies have been doing that, but it sounds like some of it has not been coordinated. Um, But basically it sounded like the government did not, and and its advisors did not want to be in a situation where you have different products being made by different companies because that would just kind of be a mess. Um, And so it seems like if the vaccines are going to be updated, um, the government will want all of the companies to be making the same, you know, targeting the same strain. So there is some consistency. And, you know, in, in an ideal world, this is something that happens globally. Um, but there may also come a time when the U.S. acts alone or sort of different regions want different vaccines, depending on what's circulating in their areas. So um, but it, yeah, I think they want as much coordination as possible in a given situation. Yeah, I thought that was really funny. Um just sort of dynamic where like Dr. Paul Offit, one of the committee members, was basically like, sometimes it seems like the companies are driving this show where they decide what they're going to test. And they're, they announce they're going to combine a COVID and a flu vaccine. And we need to be deciding this in concert with the companies. And because of that comment and, and all the discussion around Pfizer and Moderna are testing different things, I looked into what they're testing. They're both testing a bivalent combination of an Omicron protective vaccine with a wild type or, you know, original. So they would combine those two into the same vaccine. They're both testing Omicron-specific monovalent vaccines. But then Moderna also has beta and delta monovalent. um, And they also have two other bivalents, which is beta wild type and beta and delta. (laughs) Um, So it's just like there's so much happening. But at the same time, the companies were not invited to speak at this meeting. They had a representative from BARDA who seemed to be representing sort of the company perspective. And it was a little frustrating because, like, there were questions like, how long would it take you to manufacture something like this or change it over? And like the Barda guy wasn't willing to answer that, it seemed like, on behalf of the companies. And I don't know, it was just a weird dynamic. Did you find that? Yeah. Um, I mean, but, and also the Barda official, um, whose name is Robert Johnson. Sorry, I was just <laughs> double checking it. Um, he basically acknowledged the confusion. Um, he said, I think the challenge is a bit that they're not necessarily working on the same category and the same types of bivalent. And it's like, well, why? I mean, I guess, you know, companies can do their own thing, but it's like, you know, we don't want three or four different companies making, you know, having a bunch of targeted vaccines. And so it's like, you kind of just go choose which ones you want to target individually. That doesn't quite make sense, I think. So I think there will probably be some, you know, before these ever get into like the arms, I think like they will be coordinated and like, you know, hopefully there will be a decision-making process, whether that's nationally or internationally, about like, these are the strains we want to target. And so it will, you know, it makes sense that they're going to, that, and it's probably a good thing that these companies are exploring, you know, different types of shots and what looks better and what doesn't look so good. But um, yeah, it it feels like it's a little bit up in the air right now. So Drew, thanks so much for spending the day watching that FDA panel. And thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. It was good to talk with you all.
So we wanted to end the podcast this week by chatting a bit about Vertex Pharmaceuticals, which has been riding a pretty impressive string of wins from its drug research pipeline. These data are all early, so caution, of course, is warranted. But still, Vertex scientists appear to be making meaningful progress, most notably on a potentially groundbreaking treatment for type 1 diabetes and a non-opioid painkiller. Yeah, Meg, you know, you know me, uh, Mr. Jaded. Uh, glass half empty, you know, but but honestly, it, it's hard not to be impressed with Vertex's R&D output over the past six months or so. You know, I think back to the fall of 2020 when investors were kind of questioning whether Vertex would be able to pull off another blockbuster medicine from its pipeline. You know, as we all know, Vertex today is defined by its dominant cystic fibrosis drugs. But folks were worried about where the next leg of growth would come from. The stock was certainly underperforming back then because of these concerns. And I actually wrote a story which basically said Vertex needed to go out, spend a lot of money and do some big deals. Uh, Today, you know, I think it's an entirely different story. You know, Vertex's pipeline is delivering and the stock has been uh, performing super strongly. And so, you know, in in sharp contrast to some of the steep losses that we are seeing across most of the biotech sector. Yeah, it's really a standout in terms of people are so bleak on biotech right now, but Vertex actually has good news. And that's always just nice because good news for biotech actually means good news usually for humanity, at least when their drugs work. (laughs) So getting back to the drugs, last week, Vertex reported results from two phase two studies of a non-opioid painkiller. It calls VX548. Vertex's CEO, Dr. Reshma Kewal Romani, joined us on CNBC this week to discuss the news. The important thing here is there really just has been no innovation in the pain space in 30 plus years. And with the devastation of the opioid epidemic that is going across communities in America, it is clear that we need an effective pain medicine that doesn't have the addictive potential of opioids. So not only was it exciting that these phase two trials succeeded because of the potential to offer a new way to treat acute pain that's non-addictive, but it was also exciting scientifically. This drug has a really cool genetic backstory. This particular class of pain medicines and the, the tale of human genetics at play here is absolutely fascinating. As you may know, there are families of Pakistani firewalkers who have a genetic mutation that allows them to feel little or no pain despite walking on hot coals. On the flip side, there are families who have another set of genetic mutations that with the slightest stimulation, they feel intense pain. And companies have been trying to exploit these pathways to treat pain for years, working on sodium channels important for pain signaling. One pathway, known as NAV 1.7, has failed for multiple drug makers. But Vertex is targeting NAV 1.8. And at least in these phase two studies, it seems to have worked. But of course, there's still a ways to go. Phase three trials need to confirm the results. And a big question is whether Vertex will need to compare the drug head-to-head with opioids. Dr. Kewal Romani told us they haven't gone through all those interactions with the FDA yet, but they plan to start those pivotal trials by the end of the year. So Adam, pain drugs are just so hard to test because the endpoints are subjective. It's somebody saying, do they feel better or not? And my level, my threshold for pain could be way lower than yours. And so if I'm in the you know one group and you're in the other group, we're not necessarily apples to apples comparators. So how much optimism do you have that this will actually work in phase three? Well, I think you nailed it, Meg. I mean, these are, you know, pain drugs have been just historically been really difficult to develop for the reasons, you know, for for reasons that you mentioned. 
Um, but at the same time, you know, there's been this huge emphasis to try to develop, you know, non-opioid painkillers. And we obviously have this, you know, opioid epidemic crisis in this country. And uh, so, you know, there is this incredible need. Uh, so I, I think when you look at these results, yeah, sure, they're super early. Uh, you know, you don't know whether it's going to work out uh, when they start running larger studies. But I, I think you have to be encouraged by what we've seen here. Okay. Now tell us about the work that Vertex has going on in type 1 diabetes, where we're actually using the word groundbreaking, which like we are seasoned like biotech reporters. We do not use these words like breakthrough, groundbreaking, yeah, unless it really is something that's really, really potentially changing things. Yeah, you know, the story behind Vertex's experimental treatment for type 1 diabetes is is really fascinating. And it starts with the scientist who's most deeply involved with that research. And, and I'm speaking of Harvard University professor Doug Melton. You know, he's one of the leading stem cell researchers in the world. And uh, just this week announced that he was actually leaving the university to join Vertex. You know, both of Melton's now adult children have type 1 diabetes, which as a refresher occurs when a person's own immune system destroys beta cells, and those are the cells in the pancreas that make insulin. So, you know, Milton has this deeply personal relationship with the disease, and it's influenced his research, and it led him to focus on stem cells and, and more specifically, finding ways to coax those early cells to grow into insulin-producing beta cells. And, you know, what's amazing is that Melton's lab actually succeeded in growing these cells back in 2013. And that led him to form a company called Sema Therapeutics, which is named after both of his children, Sam and Emma. And Melton's connection to Vertex actually was also personal. Uh, David Altshuler, who is Vertex's chief scientific officer, st actually studied under Melton in grad school. And the two kept in touch over the years. And that led to this chance encounter back in 2019. And, you know, and I recently had a conversation with David Altshuler about this serendipitous meeting with Melton and his literally and his stem cells. Here's how Altshuler tells that story. I've known Doug since 1988, and I am a diabetologist in my clinical training. So I've been following this program for a very long time and considered it the most promising thing in the field of diabetes. And in fact, when I joined Vertex in 2015, Jeff Lydon and I had a discussion about our strategy and said, well, if you could make stem cells that were fully differentiated and could replace the cadaveric islets, and you could figure out how to modulate the immune system, that would be a great disease for Vertex to work on. So in 2019, I was at Mass General Hospital because I'm on the Scientific Advisory Council, as is Doug. And we were sitting next to each other and we were just catching up. And at lunch, he said, I have to show you something. Do you remember you know, the work we've been doing at SEMA? And I said, of course I remember. And he pulled out this tube and it had these little purple layer at the bottom. He said, these are the cells. I think we've cracked the problem. Um, but I'm trying to figure out what to do with the company. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, uh, I feel like it would be very challenging for us to bring this all the way ourselves. There's so many things we need to do, manufacturing clinical trials, you know, to bring this all the way forward for patients with type 1. And there are many others who think this is really only interesting if you can do type 2. And I said, Doug, in type 1, this, the cells are, are not there, and we know cadaveric transplants can, can work. And in type 2, which I spent... 18 years of my life studying, it's not as clear that would be the thing. And he goes, I know, I know, but I, you know, I need a partner who understands that. And we sort of looked at each other and said, we should talk. And so uh, 
Doug and Bastiano Sana, who now runs our cell and gene therapy and was the CEO of the company, and, and Aaron Reams at Vertex, we met in this room and uh, had a conversation about it. And by the end, it was clear to me that this should be something we do. Um, had a discussion with Jeff Lydon, and Vertex can move fast. So I think three months later, we closed the deal. As Altshuler alluded to, Vertex bought Semitherapeutics for just under a billion dollars in 2019, bringing Melton's diabetes stem cell research into the company, although Melton at the time chose to stay at Harvard. Last fall, Vertex announced a breakthrough with the technology, the first person with type 1 diabetes injected with these stem cells that were now beta cells, was able to produce insulin on his own for the first time. Here's Altshuler again. A few days after the leaders of the company had seen the result, we wanted to tell Doug Melton about it. And we had a meeting where Doug and myself, Bastiano Sana, who'd been the CEO of SEMA, and Felicia Paliuka, who was Doug's postdoc and had done some of the foundational science and then had moved to SEMA and Vertex, were in the room together. And we've all had a deep relationship with Doug and I've known Doug for 30 years. And I also know Doug well enough as a friend to know the deeply human part of this story with his two children, Sam and Emma, which is what SEMA stands for, uh, who have type 1 diabetes. And Doug knew that we were going to tell him the results of the first patient, but he didn't know what they were. And he was wandering the halls. He knew we had like a 4 o'clock meeting. And I saw him and he said, I feel like nervous. And I don't really feel nervous most of the time because if you know Doug, he doesn't get nervous. And he said, I feel like the day I asked Gail to marry me. And we went in the room and the first slide went up of what the results were. And he just sort of looked at it. And then there was another slide. And then he started asking questions. Like, do you mean this? What about that? What about this? Like very pointed. And then he slumped back in his chair and he goes, this is so much better than I ever had any reason to hope for. And then Felicia was crying <laughs> and I had tears in my eyes. I mean, it was just such a human moment. Um, and uh, I feel grateful just to have had the opportunity to be in that room. Yeah, it's a really it's a really cool story. And, you know, speaking to 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 David when I did, you know, you could really tell that it affected him, you know, both just the, you know, the potential for a, a, a therapy like this for, you know, the millions of people who have type one diabetes, but also just being able to kind of share that news with with someone who is his friend and, and now obviously his colleague, um, you know, uh, earlier this week, our colleague, Matt Herper, spoke to Doug Melton about his decision uh, to join Vertex. And, you know, he, he basically, you know, Matt obviously asked him, like, why, you know, why are you leaving Harvard? Why are you joining Vertex? And, and, and Doug Melton acknowledged that, you know, there was so much more work to be done. You know, they have, they literally have data on a single patient. Um, but in the end, he felt like the most important goal is to make this type 1 diabetes treatment a reality. A and to do that, the most efficient, the best way to do that was to go work at a company like Vertex where that work is being done. And, and, and it's not something that he can really do in academia. Yeah. You know, you always hear about academics struggling with this decision about whether or not to go to the dark side. You know? But like you also hear from the people who made that decision, um, uh, you know, other folks like the former Agio CEO, David Shenkine, used to talk about realizing that he just really wanted to be creating solutions, not just, you know, telling patients what already exists out there, but also trying to provide, you know, more things to, to treat patients with. So it's always really interesting to hear um, folks talk about that. Adam, one thing I'm curious about is why have we only heard about one patient? Like, what's what are the plans for testing this in more people? Well, they are testing it in more patients, and and the, there's actually kind of an interesting story there too. Is is because they really didn't know 
whether this would work and more importantly, whether it was safe. You know, they they talked to the FDA and the FDA told them, just use half of a dose. In the first patient, we want you to use half of the dose that you think will be effective just to make sure that nothing goes wrong. So the expectations for this were actually really low because they thought, well, half a dose, we're not going to see very much. So, you know, to obviously, most importantly, it was safe. Uh, and then to actually see this effect, to see the fact that this patient was starting to make insulin on 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 their own for the first time was, was really remarkable. And they're now obviously going to be uh, treating more patients and collecting more data on this. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Epinato and Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. Our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you're considering getting a booster if you're over 50. Adam, what are you going to do? I have not decided yet, Meg. I just revealed your age. <laughs> you can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.